Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Reading from the book of Joshua, starting in the first verse of the sixth chapter, the scripture says, Now the gates of Jericho were secured, securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out. And no one came in. And then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sounding a long blast of the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, and everyone straight in. And then Joshua spends some time going to his people and reiterating the plan to the Israelites. And then on the, in the 15th verse, we pick up on the seventh day that they're actually carrying out these orders. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute... And all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. If you're not familiar with this story, you're probably confused at this point. Why does the harlot get saved? Why is she spared and her family? And so maybe so you don't choke on that, two spies were sent to check this situation out. And she hid the spies and did them a favor. And because of her act of kindness, it was determined that whenever we storm the city and everything in the city, every living thing shall be destroyed, that because of her kindness to the spies, that she would be spared in her family as well. But keep away from the devoted things so you will not bring out about your own destruction by taking any of them. And otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold, the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. Of course, the skeptics don't believe this story. They don't believe a lot of things in the Bible. Some skeptics don't believe anything about the Bible. Here's the situation. After 40 long years 
of wandering in the wilderness. Israel, now under Joshua's command, because Moses has died, he's not allowed the privilege of taking the children of Israel. After leading them through the wilderness, he can't take them into the promised land. Joshua now leads the people, and they cross over the Jordan River, which puts them on the edge of the territory called the Promised Land. This is the land, of course, that was promised uh, over 400 years earlier to Abraham. And he was called of the Lord out of the earth of the Chaldees, and God said, I'm going to give this land to you and, and to your children. And then... Of course, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. And uh, the 12 sons became the official head of 12 tribes of these people. Joseph, one of the sons, got sold into Egyptian bondage by the other jealous brothers. And they spent several centuries in bondage in Egypt. And so about 70 people went into Egypt, to make a very long story very short, and uh, a couple of million came out. It was there long enough to multiply. Here comes Israel out of Egyptian bondage, and now they're going to go and get their promised land that was promised to Abraham years ago. So on the way to get the promised land... They sent spies into the land, and the spies came back and said, well, we don't want to take that land. They've got giant people over there, and we're afraid of them. So God and Moses talk about the fear of the people possessing the land, and God said, well, then I'll just force them to wander in the wilderness until all of the skeptics and all of the doubters and all of those of little faith, and the murmurers and the complainers, die. And when they're dead and they're gone, then we'll do something. So they did. They wandered until that group died off. Then God said, let's try it again. Now send some spies. And the spies came back, and it was a favorable report, and they said, let's take the land. Now they're ready to take the land. They could have had it 40 years earlier. You just got to get rid of the uh, inhibitors, those that are digging their heels in. Now, now, don't try and make applications here. I'm not trying to get rid of anybody, but God uses that tactic sometimes. I keep trying to hold on. God's the one that shoves people out of the way. So they cross over. Now they're in the territory of the promised land. And the first city that they come to is, is uh, the city of Jericho. And it's a walled city. And it's not a large city. Just think about it. They marched around it seven times in one day. It's not very large. If it was a mile around the city, Maybe seven miles that they marched. Or do the math, whatever you want to come up with. But it was not 100 miles around because they didn't go 700 miles. It was not 50 miles around, I promise you. 
But it was a small city, but it was walled. And you've got to start somewhere. If you're going to take the promised land, this is the first thing you come to. You have to do something. Now, I said the skeptics don't like this story. So let me just share with you uh, an example of how the doubters explain this story. This is what they say. The Rahab clan in the city probably opened the gates or found some other way to let the invaders in. See, they're trying to deny that the walls came down. So Rahab was in on this. I'll sneak out and open the gates and let you in. A mine of explosives was planted under the walls while the men of Jericho were distracted by the Israelites marching around the city. That's another explanation. The marchers served to distract the attention of the watchers from Israelite sappers at work undermining the walls. So while they're marching, they've got people over there digging the walls out so nobody will notice. Do you believe that one? Here's another one. It's been thought that perhaps the resounding shout of the Israelites on the seventh day, operating on a principle of vibration, such as that by which an opera singer can break a glass by hitting the right note, could have caused the walls to fall down. Now that's a miracle too. Or... They shouted, and God knocked the walls down. Now, which version do you believe? Here's some things I want you to learn from this story. I'm going to start off with the issue of patience. Waiting in patience for the promise. Or I might summarize that. God wants us to wait. I hate waiting. But I know I have to learn the art of waiting. And there's this promise that God gave to Joshua. He said, see now. They crossed over Jordan. They, they see Jericho. Jericho sees the Israelites. And, and they start uh, reinforcing the city. And shutting the gates and locking it. No man goes in. No man goes out. It looks like we're about to be under siege. And at that point, as these people are fortifying their gates and, and making it all the stronger, all the more impenetrable, God says to Joshua, see that? I've just given it to you. Now, that doesn't make any sense. No, they're locking the gates. It doesn't look at all like you've given me anything. God says, see, I have given the entire city to you. But it's going to be another week before they really, literally have it in their possession. That's a period of waiting. The promise is preceding the possession. Now, I know it does. You promise something, it precedes the possession. But that time between the promise and the possession is a waiting period. And in this case, the promises from God, he says, it's as good as yours. I have already given it to you. How many of you know that God is not restricted by time? I mean, if he declares it to be so, to him it's not a week later. It's done. 
We're the only ones that are bound by time. So God says, I have now declared this is your possession. So we have this waiting period. Now here's some benefits that we learn from waiting on God. First of all, we, have, we are blessed with the sense of anticipation. Anticipation, I would suggest to you, is one of the great spices of life. A child is giddy with anticipation in the days approaching Christmas. Have you noticed that? They are so eaten up with anticipation, sometimes they dig a little corner off the package just to get a peek. Or a mother is walking on clouds when she receives word that her grown children are coming home to see her. And that sense of excitement and anticipation. Or a young lady excitedly looks forward to her wedding day. It might still be months away or years away, but that anticipation. Living every day for that which is coming. Or the young man that just got hired for his dream job is is just excited to be able to get in there and start that job. He's gotten the education, he's gotten the job he wanted, and he just can't wait to get at it. Or a couple shares their indescribable excitement and anticipation because they know that soon they're going to bring a baby into this world. Anticipation is wonderful, isn't it? And it's not just the actual day we receive, but it's an entire journey getting to that day that makes life so rich. When we're looking forward to something great, it just life's just so much better. When we're not looking forward to something that is not so good, life can be rather depressing. We're dreading that which is scheduled for us that we dread. I just got a jury notice in the mail. I'm not excitedly anticipating the day. There are better things I can think to excite me than that. I'll do it. I'll serve. I'll gladly serve. But it's just one of those things that I wake up and I'm like, guess what? <laughs> Jury day duty is one day closer. Praise God. Except they usually find out I'm a preacher and they dismiss me. I feel slighted. So we, we, most of us tend to fantasize about God answering our prayers in an instant. Don't we think about that most often? When we pray, don't we think, wouldn't it be nice, God, as I'm praying this, that right now? And then I can just go on with life. We anticipate. We long for instantaneous answers to our prayer. Have you had more prayers answered over the course of time than you have prayers answered in a moment? Have you sometimes been made to feel a little bit guilty by your friends or by Bible teachers or or by some suggestion that if you don't get your prayers answered right now, you must not be living right, you must not be praying right, you must not be fasting long uh, hard enough, and just all these things because if you can't make hap- things happen in prayer right now, you've got something spiritually wrong with you. Well, that's not true. 
promises that are given by God sometimes take a while to come into effect. I remember uh, a minister uh, acquaintance I had that he was talking about God giving him the promise that there was a a foreign country that God had clearly given him the promise said, you will minister in that country. That's a promise. Well, he held on to that promise. But, you know, his life took a, a... a different course. As he didn't become a missionary, he became a pastor, he, he had a family. Everything in his life was shaping up in a totally different direction until the time came about 17 years later, which through the course he had taken, he now had the opportunity to go to this country for something else and stand there and minister. And when he got there, he had forgotten about this, but when he got there, it just dawned on him. Here I am in the country where God had promised I would be 17 years. Sometimes it takes a while for the promise to come about. But patient waiting. God wants us to learn how to wait. We want to get prayed for and we just want to witness healings right before our eyes. We want to see ailments vanish right now. We tend to gravitate towards this sense of instant gratification and instant service because we're so surrounded by it, we're so used to it in everything we do in life that we bring that into God's house. We're spoiled with instant gratification. We've been conditioned in our society uh, just to have things right now. I, I don't know how many times I've been like at a counter ordering something or I've been at a grocery store in a line and uh, whoever's waiting on me has a difficult time getting everything going in the right direction. Maybe the cashier has a machine that breaks down or, or it, the computer's slow. Have you done that? You've gone to the and you swipe your card and the computer takes, oh, it must take 20 seconds. And the cashier is standing there saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. It just doesn't, it's just so slowed it down. And you're thinking, I remember going to A&P when I was a little boy. And they would pick up one can or one item of grocery at a time and had this large manual key punch machine, cash register, and they'd punch in the price on that and then set it over here. One at a time. And now they're apologizing because the computer is 10 seconds slower than it usually is. Because we have grown so accustomed to everything being right now. Now, many years ago, I was holding revival in a small town in northern Missouri. And as the custom was for me, quite often in those days, I ate my meals with the hosts, the pastor and his family. And so they had uh, told me it was about mealtime, come on into the house. And uh, it's not like they made me slip, sleep outside. I had a Winnebago. <laughs> so I had, had my motorhome say, come on into the house. <laughs> You've got to explain things sometimes, people. <laughs> so I went and I was, and, you know, have a seat at the table because we're, we're, we're going to be ready in a minute. So she was finishing up stuff in the kitchen there, and me and the pastor were sitting there talking, and she was joining in with the conversation. 
And the little two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old boy, I'm estimating, was sitting, still sitting in a high chair. And in, in the midst of, of all this preparation and the, the meal's about ready to be served, the little boy announces to the mother, I want a cookie. And the mother is busying herself with the pots and the pans and the, and, and the meal, and she just keeps going without missing a, a stride. And she says, you can't have a cookie right now. We're getting ready to eat. And then the little boy responded a little bit louder. I want a cookie. Now I'm going, oh, boy. <laughs> this is awkward. I don't want to be here right now. And the mother elevated her response. Uh, no, I said you're not getting a cookie right now. We're going to eat in just a minute. That should settle that. Now, the next thing that happened the little boy slaps the tray, and he says, I want a cookie, and I want it now. And I thought, this kid's going to get it. And I watched, and he did. He got the cookie. Now, I don't know what he grew up to be, but I have visions in my mind. Because when you're pandering to something like that, I want it now, I want it now, you're just reinforcing for that young child and for any generation that if you can't have what you want right now, all you have to do is scream and shout and throw a fit and somebody's going to, they're going to get what you, you're going to get what you want. Now, that amused me. I'm not amused when I see it happen in adult people. That doesn't amuse me. I'm frustrated with impatient grown adults. We, it seems we have contented ourselves with only those things we can get from God instantaneously. But there's a lot of things that come from God that they don't come because you demand because you have this spoiled fit. But they come because you wait. They either wait upon the Lord. This, this art of waiting. Teach us, Lord, how to wait for the good things. For the, good, the really good things that come, you wait. The really valuable things you must patiently wait for. The second thing we get from this is it builds confidence. See, God, interestingly enough, as I'm thinking through this story, God could have given them the city on the first day. You ever thought about that? It was God's design to wait seven days. Now, there was a lot of things that went on during the seven days. One of the things that went on that we don't hear anything about in Scripture, but it had to happen is it must have been playing real mental games with the enemy. Whenever day you get up and these annoying people are marching around your city and do, saying nothing, the only noise is trumpets. But he said, don't speak a word, don't say anything. Just get up and march around and go home. You know, after three or four days of this, the people say, these people are beginning to get on my nerves. 
What are they doing? They're on edge. They're uneasy. They don't know what's coming. So God's playing with, with their mind. But the other thing it's doing is it's building confidence and training them to trust God. Do exactly as I say. So they're marching around the city, and they probably are having questions themselves. You know, the people who are so practical, that they're saying, as they're marching around the city, they're thinking, why are we doing this? What is this all about? They march around, they go home, and then when they get home, they, they talk with one another. So what was that all about? And they have to go do it again tomorrow. What was that all about? They do it for six days. They don't see anything happening. What was that all about? Shouldn't there be progress by now? But it's building the trust and the confidence. And that's one of the best ways God builds trust and confidence in us is that time, that period of waiting. And if we can't stand the wait, we probably will not be in on receiving the promise because that's one way God weeds out people. The 11th chapter of Hebrews says this, By faith... The walls of Jericho fell. See, faith is the trying of our patience. Faith is the trying of our obedience. And faith is the trying of our discipline. Lord, teach us to wait. Point number two. Learn the price of the promise. God wants us to wait, and then God wants us to work. God said to Joshua, I've given the city to you. But you're going to have to do something. I mean, he could have just handed it over to him. He could have swiped his hand and all the inhabitants are gone. He could have done that in the city is yours. But here's, here's what I want you to understand. God wants you to have some skin in the game. Now, this is a phrase that, that we understand in this culture, but it, some attribute this back to uh, Warren Buffett, whenever he was trying to get some professional people, some doctors, some attorneys, uh, some, some high rollers to invest. But along with getting them to invest, he himself put his own money into it because he said you have to have skin in the game. In other words, if you believe in it, you are going to be personally invested in it. Now, do you believe in the promises of God? If you do, you have to have some skin in the game. It wasn't as though they could take the promise of God where God said, I have given you the city. And then Israelite says, in that case, let's go sit on a hill and let's just wait. Because that isn't what God wanted them to do. He said, no, I want you to have some skin in the game. I want you to be personally invested in this. One of the most obvious aspects of this entire story is that the Israelites begin right here this long and arduous journey that teaches them what it really means to possess the promised land. The price of the promise. That's really what this whole story is all about, is they have to pay the price for possessing. Because they didn't just conquer Jericho and then possess the promised land. They didn't just conquer Ai and then possess the promised land. But for generations, they continued to fight for their promised land. You cannot find a time in history where they just simply possessed this and did not have to expend the energy in order to keep it, in order to maintain it. And you have to realize that the promise comes with a price. 
If you want something from God, are you willing to invest what it takes then to keep that promise, to take care of that promise, to protect that promise? Or do you just want God to give something to you and it just becomes an object on the mantle? No, you have to be willing then to take the responsibility for that. I remember when I was young, I, one of the things that meant so much to me at that time, because it was kind of the mentality of the people in my generation, I couldn't wait to get my driver's license. Now, I don't see the same drive today in, the, in this younger generation. Uh, I see many, many cases where the 16th birthday comes and goes, the 17th, the 18th, night, pretty soon... The parent is dragging the child up to the driver's license office. You will take a test. You will learn how to drive. I'm not your chauffeur anymore. Nobody was going to drag me. I'm pumped. I'm ready. I had studied the day of my 16th birthday. I was up there taking the test and getting my driver's license. I was ready. Next step is to own a car. And whenever I got my first car, then I realized the price of owning a car. If you want that, then you're going to have to insure it. You're going to have to maintain it. You've got to put tires on it once in a while. You've got to put gas in it. Gas, putting gas in it was a major thing for me. I remember going to the gas station and saying, give me 50 cents worth. A lot of responsibility goes along. And we pray for a lot of things here at Westside. Lord, give us, give us, give us more people. Give us a a better building. Give us, do you realize what it costs to have those kind of things? It's not that I say we shouldn't pray for them. I'm saying, do you know what you're praying? Do you know what it means to have more people here who need more ministry? If you're going to pray that, are you praying, God, let me be a part of, of making that happen and making it successful when it comes to us? Or are you just praying, God, bring more on because our pastor can do it all. And until we're all ready to roll up our sleeves and say, I'm ready to be a part of the increase. I'm ready to take up the slack for whatever it takes when God begins to give us more responsibility. I'm going to be there. There's a price for the promise. God's promises often require us, often require us to be personally invested. Now, my father grew up in the Depression. And like so many of the people in that generation, they knew how to be resourceful. They created useful things out of junk. They were experts at the art of making something out of nothing. They knew that nobody was going to come along and just give them something. If they wanted to eat, they had to work. If they wanted anything, they had to find a way to make it happen. There's a reason why they were called the greatest generation. We have some of those people in our congregation today that you are a rich source of ingenuity and inspiration for all of us. I just wish... That the younger generation would get interested enough to get some of you to the side and just tell me your story. Tell me the values that you have instilled in you because of the way that you grew up. 
See, my father was from that generation. He was extremely resourceful. Let me just give you a couple examples. My father bought my mother a radio for her birthday. It was a Heathkit radio. Does anybody here know what a Heathkit is? <laughs> I've got a few of you here. Now, for those of you that don't know what a Heathkit is, this was a company that made electronic uh, gear, and you could buy it already assembled, or you could buy it for this cheaper price, and they send you the kit. So you could buy a stereo, you could buy a radio, you could buy a, a guitar amplifier. There was all kinds of things. And my dad bought my mom a Heath kit kit. Of course, he didn't expect mom to put it together. Guess who got to put it together? Then we started a gospel quartet. And we didn't know how much God would use us, how far this would go. But when we begin to show some signs of maybe generating some, some interest and maybe going and traveling and singing a little bit, my dad said, I will buy you an amplifier. He, what he did is he was going to get a, a guitar amplifier and a couple cheap mics, and we'd plug it into the guitar amplifier and we'd sing out of it because that was good enough for us at the time. If we got better than that, we'd get better equipment. You know, be faithful with the little things. He said, I'll buy you a guitar amplifier. Now, can you guess what kind of guitar amplifier he got me? A Heath kit. And here it comes in all the pieces, the transistors, the, the resistors, the diodes, the circuit board, and, it's all, and, and, and the instructions. Put it together and you'll have yourself a nice amplifier. Guess who got to put it together? Well, at that time, I was 15 years old. And I'm going to assemble an amplifier. Because my dad, he was, just, he was, he was teaching me what it means to be personally invested in something. You see? And then the, the real kicker is this. When I was about 10 years old, and my brother was 15 because he's five years older than I am, my dad said to us, boys, would you like a swimming pool? Do you know where this is going? He didn't buy us a swimming pool. He bought us a shovel. He said, I will pay for it. You build it. So here we are out there, these pitiful kids with shovels trying to hack out a hole in the ground. And then he'd, then he'd come and say, now you need to dig a footer along here so we can pour concrete. And we'd dig it. And, and now you need to tie the rebar. And we'd tie the rebar. And we'd pour the footer. And he said, now you need to build forms here so we can form up and, and pour the concrete walls. And uh, when I say we... I was the mouse in the pocket because my brother was 15 and he was, understood more about working than I. I was 10 years old, but I was just kind of there pecking away at things as a 10-year-old can. And there, me and my brother, we did it. We did. I'm, I'm reminded of that time that uh, Michael Jordan scored 69 points and they was interviewing Stacy King. And they said, what do you think? He scored one point that night. What do you think? He said, I'll always remember that night as the night that me and Michael Jordan scored 70 points. I'll always remember that time as me and my brother built a swimming pool. 
my brother turned 16, my dad bought him a Volkswagen. That's not exactly true. My dad bought him two Volkswagens. They were both wrecks. And you'll get a job and you'll pay me for them and you'll take the two and you'll make one out of it. And my brother did. He spent his nights learning about mechanics and learning how to take two junkers and make one out of it. I, I got to tell this. This has nothing to do with the, the uh, sermon. But it's so fun. <laughs> he had got that, that Volkswagen put together. And I had an early morning paper route. And we were using his Volkswagen to deliver those early morning papers. I took the route because I wanted to make some money. But my brother got snookered into taking me in his car every morning because they discovered that I was too little to carry the newspapers in a sack because I, I couldn't carry them. So we both got the route. So here he is getting up and getting his car out. And the car wouldn't start. A little Volkswagen he put together. So Volkswagens are easy to push. So here I am, probably about 11 years old. And, and we couldn't start. He said, you get in the Volkswagen and I will push it. And we, once we got it out of our driveway, we lived on a slight hill that goes around a curve. So we went down the hill. Meanwhile, the neighbors wake up. They always slept with their, their window open. And they heard the commotion going on. We're not just starting a car and leaving. And they look out, and here they see the Volkswagen going down. And I'm sitting behind the wheel. And all they can see is about that much of the top of my head through the window. And my brother behind pushing this what seems to be an empty car in the dark going around. And I've got to pop that clutch somehow. And I pop the clutch, and I take off. My brother's running after me. <laughs> oh, we had fun. But they taught us to be personally invested. God wants you to work. He wants you to be personally invested in this church. I appreciate those who are stepping up to do something. There's plenty of things we can do. It applies to the spiritual things of God as well. You want the spiritual things of God? He wants to know you're going to be personally invested in it. For many of the young people that you're sitting here in this church today, you are sitting in a church that has been bought and paid for by another generation. They worked hard to provide this church for you. But they're leaving us. They're a part of a vanishing generation. And here's the harsh reality, young people. When they're gone, you're going to pay the bills or you're going to close this building down. You're going to maintain this place or you're going to shut this place down. You're going to pay my salary or I'm leaving. And if you're taking a free ride now and you're not getting on board, you don't know what it means to be personally invested in anything. You're taking advantage of somebody else who's provided everything for you. And I have stuck my neck out far for you when I ask the older people to sacrifice 
the things that were important to them to let you have the kind of service that you wanted. They paid for it. They bought it. They maintained it. And they are out of the courtesy and the bigness of their own heart. They're allowing this to go another direction. But I wonder if you're personally invested in this church because if you're not, you're a freeloader. I'm not responsible for what I say when I'm anointed. Number three, possessing the promise. God wants us to. God wants us to win. When God guarantees the victory, you just can't lose unless you just simply refuse to fight. First of all, God knows what to provide. And the fact is, we don't need much. And as a matter of fact, when God said, what I want you to bring to the fight is some trumpets. It was kind of illustrating, there's nothing you can bring that has any significance for winning. It's just obedience. Just be there. God said, I'll provide the rest. I'll take care of it. But I want you to be there. He'll provide everything you need. Nothing you can possibly bring has any significance except just to be in obedience to God. The second thing I want you to understand is God knows how to connect with you. He appears in a way that you can relate to him. You, you remember when Abraham was wandering as a nomad in the desert? You know how God appeared to him as a nomad? He appeared to a wayfarer as a wayfaring stranger because God knows how to relate to where you are. When Jacob spent his entire life in conflict, it had become his way of accomplishing things. He was not a finesse type of person. He was a grappler. So God took his wrestling gear and came and wrestled with him all night long because that's what Jacob understands. And the greatest example was Christ came in the likeness of man because he knows how to relate to who we are. In order to complete his plan of salvation, he didn't come and appear in his glory. He didn't appear in his great majesty and splendor. He didn't come as a conquering king. He took upon himself the form of a servant and appeared to people who themselves were servants because he knows how to relate to what you need. And Joshua was, was this military man. And so God appeared to him and he said, Who are you? He said, I'm captain of the Lord's army because he knows how to relate. And after they crossed the River Jordan. Joshua pauses at the outskirts of Jericho and he assesses the situation. At long last, they had reached the promised land. And this very first city, this one with the walls, would be the most challenging obstacle probably they would ever face. The hardest one was first. And victory over a tiny village might have been more to their liking. Maybe a few small battles to build them up and get them accustomed, you know? But God started with the hardest because he was the one given the victory anyway. What, what, what did, difference did it make? Who didn't start with the easies and work up? It started with Jericho. 
And what he did is that they might have their confidence in him. So if he'd have led them to a bunch of little villages and let them do that and build their self-confidence, they don't need self-confidence. They need God-confidence. That's all you need. You might have all kinds of self-doubts. Moses had self-doubts. He said, I can't even talk. Don't worry about it. Had all kinds of objections. You might have all kinds of... You need God-confidence. He'll get the job done. Because there is no confidence in the flesh. There's nothing you can do. All you have to do is just believe in Him and trust in Him. He wants you to win. He doesn't delight in watching us fail. But He'll allow us to fail if it'll teach us how to do something better. He wants us to win. And He's done three things that'll make it possible for us to win. First of all, He claims the victory before we ever go to battle. Number two, he promises to provide all the equipment necessary for the victory. And number three, he promises, I'll be there for you. I'll come, whatever you need, I'll be there for you. Storm your Jericho. I don't know what your Jericho is today. But can you be personally invested in it? And can you trust God for the victory? Bow your heads.